Well, good evening, everyone. Glad you guys came out this evening. You know, we're supposed to get warmer weather from here on out, which is exciting. Actually, in the 50s on Christmas Eve, and uh, I figured, I, I can deal with that. I like that. So, uh, blessing to be here tonight. Uh, before we get into, uh, we're actually going to start the book of Ezra this this evening. And so, uh, uh, I think because, you know, we're kind of in this building phase ourselves is what's going on in, in our church and, and, and getting ready for next year. And, and I think, man, this would be a great book to start. It ties in with the book of Daniel. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Hey, there's Stephen. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> uh, he'll bring one right to your seat. You can follow along with us. As you're turning there, huh? Yeah, or at the very back, there's a hand. There's really not, Stephen. I'm sorry I said did that to you. <laughs> A um, couple of things I want to share before we get into God's Word. We've been praying for Dennis Hunt, uh, Becca's, uh, Becca Isbell, Becca Isbell Hunt, her husband. And uh, we got a text, I think it was last week, that said that Dennis is in remission from his cancer. And that's just praise the Lord for that. So, yeah. God answers our prayers. And, and uh, uh, also, I just found out from Julie that it is Sue's birthday, and so Sue is Bell's birthday, so happy birthday, Sue. So, yeah, happy. Um, what else? <laughs> uh, prayer. Uh, my brother-in-law, Larry, is going in on Friday for open-heart surgery. He's got, um, born with two valves that they didn't find, they didn't know that. I guess the normal is three, and, and he has two, and so they're going to put a valve in. They're going to clean out, a, a do a bypass, and then an aneurysm. So, you know, for these doctors that do this, they're good at what they do, but we just want to pray for, um, just for his surgery to go well this Friday, and, and uh, he's um, a couple years younger than Lisa, and, and uh, uh, just, a, just a neat guy. And so we just pray that God would heal him and give the doctors wisdom for that. And, and uh, um, let's pray, and then... Um, as you're turning, if you have Ezra chapter 1, also uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 44. And then we're going to back up to Second Chronicles chapter 36, but that's right before Ezra chapter 1. So you don't need to worry about that. But we'll look at, we're going to look at Second Chronicles 36 first. Um, but have Isaiah 44, maybe a bookmark there or something like that. So... Oh, and both my sons are here. I mean, that's awesome. Chris and, and Matt are both here from the military. So, yeah. Praise report. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight and just for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word. We want to thank you for Dennis and the cancer being in, in remission, Lord. Uh, truly, Lord, we understand that when your people pray, Lord, you move mightily and and we continue to pray for Dennis that you continue to heal him we continue to want to lift up Larry my brother-in-law for the surgery coming up on Friday that uh, you would uh, just give the doctors wisdom and, and just guiding their hands and, and getting what needs to be done and you, you would just uh, bring Larry through this uh, just a hundred percent okay Lord even heal him before he even goes in would be great Lord uh, just pray that you would again just give Larry peace uh, that passes understanding, give him calmness, Lord, help him to just uh, trust in you during this process. And Lord, we thank you for just this opportunity to study your word tonight, Lord. We pray that as we dig in, Lord, that we would not only find information, but application in our lives that draws closer to you. Thank you for this time. We give it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
I was really trying to think, okay, what book should we start next? And I thought the way this was going to happen is, well, we'll finish up, you know, Daniel, the book of Daniel, then we'll go right into Christmas and New Year's, then I'll start a new book. Or well, I end up finishing up Daniel a week too soon. And so I thought, well, I do a special Christmas message tonight, but we're going to do that on Sunday, and then we're going to have our Christmas Eve service. And so really prayed, and I thought, well, let's let's dig into where, you know, really Daniel left off. You know, if you recall in, in, in chapter 9, uh, what, what's happening there with, with Daniel really is in a time of the book of Ezra. Remember the Jewish people, they were taken into captivity because of their sin. God had given them warning after warning. And that really is the way God is. Before the wrath of God is poured out, a warning from God is always laid out. Before God's wrath is poured out, God will always send a prophet to warn the people to stop sinning, to stop the way that they're going, stop the direction they're turning. Look at Second Chronicles chapter 36. You should be just a page over from uh, Ezra. Look at verse 14 and 15. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he has consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. See, we serve a God that is gracious, full of goodness. And I'm thankful when we do blow it, God doesn't bring the hammer down instantaneously. The work of the Holy Spirit in our life is such that, that as He draws me away from that sin, He brings me to the point of confession and repentance. It's the grace of God working in, in my life. The Bible says it's the goodness or the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The goodness, the kindness of God as He's working in me and, and in you to give us the chance after chance to listen, to repent, to turn from our sin and, and go the right way that God leads us to. But not so much for Israel. They didn't turn. But God sends warning after warning messages. Look at verses 16 and 17 in Second Chronicles 36. It says, But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young men or virgin, or the age or the weak. He gave them all into his hand. See, all that came, though, after warning after warning. That's why you don't need to turn there, but in the book of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18, the Lord says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they should be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That word for reason there is, come now, let's reason, means to, to argue, to adjust, to correct, to convict. See, God is willing to have a dialogue with us. Even though you or I may be in rebellion and refusing to repent. The heart of God is Isaiah 118 that tells us He's willing to work with us. Again, not bringing down the heavy hammer of judgment because before punishment, He'll plea, He'll seek. Come uh, Now, he has one purpose in the conversation. He would say, come now, turn around, I'm giving you one more chance. Don't keep going down that path of destruction. Strange that God has to put it that way, but it's out of his compassion and his concern that he says in the second half of, of Isaiah 118, if you are willing, and if you are obedient, you know that I'm going to bless you. You'll, you'll eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, then you're going to be devoured, you're going to be destroyed. 
See, God was saying to them, I'm giving you this opportunity to obey. What, what will you do? It's strange that it would even have to be a debate like that. It's kind of like, like the old show. I think it's still on. Let's make a deal. You know, you want door number one, door number two, door number three. Door number two, devoured by the sword. Door number one, eat good of the land. You know what? It's a pretty easy decision. I mean, it's not as if God is keeping it a secret. We know what's behind the curtain. It's either or. And we say, well, if Israel knew that judgment was coming, that they would soon be devoured by the sword, if they continue to choose door number two, why would they still continue to go down that path? I'm glad you asked. Here's why. Because at this time, this point in Israel, since they've so calloused their spirit that they have a hard time deciding what to do. We see it in our day and age as well. Should I continue in this ungodly relationship even though I know it's going to cost me my marriage or cost me my family? Should I continue to cheat and compromise at the workplace even though you know, I may pay the price in prison? Should I continue to live in sin even though I know I should stop? But you see, if God has given you a word of warning before His wrath, wouldn't you expect that if you failed to respond that sooner or later you're going to see that wrath? God gives us warnings all the time. Listen to what Jeremiah 5.29 says. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? It's kind of like, like a parent talking to his child. You know, I, I've warned you. You tested me. You've been disobedient. Now, there's nothing less, but you need to be disciplined. Again, God gave Israel two choices. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. If you refuse and rebel, you should be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In fact, listen to what Jeremiah 5 verse 30 the Lord says there. An astonishing and a horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? When I look at that verse, I can't help but think uh, what's going on in our own country and the parallel that we're seeing today. And I don't know if you, I've been, I've been pulled away from this and I've been following these impeachment hearings. Maybe you guys have been watching this as well and, and, oh man, we see it. We're seeing lying. We're seeing falsehoods. Uh, the division in our country is as great, if not greater, I think, than the time of the Civil War. The only difference is the two sides of the coin. The, the division between the conservative and the liberal, the godly and the ungodly, right and wrong. You see, but I, I believe this goes much further than just an impeachment, but there's this, this leftist agenda that, that's driving this, and it's a push to actually change everything this nation is and everything this nation has stood for. And they're not ashamed to push it through. They should be. This past week, maybe you caught this, there's a commercial on the Hallmark Channel depicting two women getting married and kissing at their wedding. There's a, an outcry against it. So Hallmark Channel pulls the ad. But then the LGBTQT was, you know, bigger and said, no, well, you can't do that. So they caved in and they put the ad back in. You know, we're seeing the abortion on demand even up to the time that the child is in the birth canal. Could the times that we live in not be any more evil? Or Netflix, maybe you caught this, and, and they're airing of the Brazilian show depicting a homosexual Jesus. One person writing concerning this Netflix, and I agree, says, No one is obliged to believe in Jesus Christ, but we demand respect for our beliefs. Whoever disrespects my God does not deserve my money. There's a civil war taking place between good and evil, darkness and light. It's a spiritual battle we see going on today. 
And it just proves what John said in, in 1 John 2.18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Whether we know this or not, or recognize it or not, there's a war against Christianity in the United States. The veiled persecution of Christians in this supposed land of the free makes no sense, common or otherwise. Rather, it's truly pushing an agenda that is totally antichrist. And, and, and it's in direct opposition to anything that has to do with Jesus Christ. We're, we're watching money from, from large corporations and people like George Soros just pushing this antichrist agenda. Even now, many antichrists have come by which we know it is the last hour. Psalm 37, 12 says, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. Tony Perkins, he's a, a head of the Family Research Council, and he said this about this impeachment that's going on. This attack by the rabid Democrats really isn't about Trump. It's about the righteous policies and godly judges and good works that President Trump and his administration have enacted. President Trump is not the real target. You and I and the policy gains we made are. Liberals are enraged by, the pre- by President Trump's protect life rule that stopped Planned Parenthood from getting funding for abortions in the amount of over $16 million. They're incensed by his defense of religious liberty, which he protected nationwide by issuing a historic presidential executive order promoting free speech and religious liberty in 2017. They are furious he has appointed dozens of originalist federal judges who will defend our constitutional freedoms for years. And perhaps most of all, they are outraged at his steadfast support of life. At a recent gathering of FRC Action Partners, former House Freedom Caucus Chairman Representative Mark Meadows stated that Donald Trump is the most pro-life president in the history of America. What does that mean for us? Another civil war? It's possible. The Bible says in the last days, the love of men will wax cold. And we know that we are not mentioned in end times prophecy of the United States. Could it be because of civil unrest that we're too busy dealing with our own conflicts that we are no longer a player in the world stage? Here's what we do know. We know our God is the God who loves us. And He wants to see as many people make the right choice to commit their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. And if it takes persecution for this to come in, in this in this nation we live in, and he thinks that the church goes best in persecution, and God will do what is best. If judgment is going to come because of our own choices and decisions, but that's the only way the people of the United States will turn back to their roots and follow the God of the Bible, then God's going to do what is best. In the same way, if revival comes because of the right choices of the people, then God will do what God does best. Now take this back to Israel. This was a choice that they had. And they chose poorly. As a result of that, listen to Second Chronicles 36, verse 17 in the New Living Translation. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. So we see judgment came. Now look at verses 18 to 21 of Second Chronicles 36. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. 
And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. What were the main reasons that God's people were carried away to Babylon? Two reasons. It was because they scorned God's love by continuing serving false gods. They, they, they worshipped idols, you know, but, but they represented, you know, many varieties of lifestyles, these, these idols. Ashtoreth was the goddess of, of sensuality. Moloch, the god of prosperity. Baal, the god of the intellect. And Mammon, the god of money. And God's people found themselves further and further into these lifestyles. And finally the Lord says, okay, I'm sending Babylon and, 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 and we're gonna, you know, which is, is really the crazy, the center of false religions. And I'm gonna take you guys captive. And it was during those 70 years of captivity an amazing thing happened. They got burnt out on idols. You wanna worship, worship idols? Okay, here, here's your plethora of idols. So much so, from then on throughout their entire history, we never ever see them again falling prey to idolatry. You know, the Apostle Paul, in reference to an individual who continues to live in a state of immorality, Paul instructed the church of Corinth to, to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in order that his spirit might be saved. The objective was not to excommunicate him, but to restore him to see him brought back to that place of right relationship with the Lord. And that's what the Babylonian captivity did. And that, that's what, what happened in Corinth. Again, God's people were carried into captivity because they had skirted God's law. You know, the second thing was they didn't let the land rest. We looked at this before. They, they were to let the land rest, Leviticus 25.4, uh, every seventh year, but, but they, they, didn't think, they didn't do that. And so that's why the 70 years of captivity for the Jewish people. Now, if you recall, back in Daniel chapter 9, after Daniel studying the Scriptures, realized that the 70 years were nearly expired. And Daniel then, beautiful prayer in chapter 9, he confesses uh, the sins of the nation. And he takes responsibility himself. Oh Lord, and remember that prayer, we studied it. And then perhaps due to his political position or power, he was able to share some interesting insights with Cyrus, king of Persia. Look at, at turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. We'll go right back to Ezra in a moment. Isaiah 44, verse 28. This is amazing. Isaiah 44 verse 28 says this. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, to, to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Now turn over to chapter 45 verses 1 through 6. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the arm of kings, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name, I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. This is really, really incredible. 
170 years before Cyrus was even born, Isaiah prophesied that a man named Cyrus would come on the scene and he would say, hey, build Jerusalem. Let the captives go. And although he didn't know the Lord, the Lord surely knew Cyrus. Now this brings us to Ezra chapter 1. Look now at verses 1 to 4 of the book of Ezra. We read, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people. May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with the silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, if you just look the previous page over in your Bible, you'll see that these first two verses are almost word for word as the same last two verses of the book of Second Chronicles. This has led many to believe that Ezra also wrote the book of Chronicles. Now again, we know that Cyrus was the king who, along with Darius the Mede, conquered Babylon at the end of Daniel chapter 5. Remember, they diverted the Euphrates uh, River and then it, it dried up so they were able to go underneath and, and uh, easily capture the city and kill King Belshazzar who had just that evening saw the handwriting on the wall for, you know, uh, you know what he did. But, uh, and remember that the, the message to, to, to him was, you've been found, wait in the balance that you've been found lacking. Well, fast forward now to 538 B.C., Cyrus, Cyrus sends us proclamation throughout the Persian Empire, giving glory to the true living God and saying that he'd been called to build God's temple in Jerusalem. And he announced them and tells them it's time to go back and perform the work. He even commanded that the, that the neighbors of the Jews should help finance their trip home. No doubt all of the words of Isaiah as we already looked at touch Cyrus's hearts. I mean, could you imagine opening up God's Word and reading something about you specifically in, in the Bible. Your name is mentioned before you were even born. I mean, what would you do? Regarding God's communication with Cyrus, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote this. This was known to Cyrus by his reading the book which Isaiah left behind him of his prophecies. For this prophet said that God had spoken thus to him in a secret vision, my will is that Cyrus, whom I have appointed to be king over many and great nations, send back my people to their own land and build my temple. This was foretold by Isaiah 140 years before the temple was demolished. Accordingly, when Cyrus read this and admired the divine power and earnest desire and ambition, ceased upon him to, to fulfill what was so written. Man, to see that this God who knows the future and knew him was a God who's calling him uh, by name and giving him a divine commission. The command that the Lord spoke to Cyrus directly through his word was very specific. God was telling Cyrus that his rise of power and wealth had been divinely directed. And he was put into place to bring about the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem's temple so that God would receive the glory. See, in verse 1 it says that the word of the Lord might, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled. What was the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah? I thought it was Isaiah. Well, listen to Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit 
you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. So if you take Cyrus, who God has raised up, as Isaiah says, and you take when this was to happen, as Jeremiah says, then you would know that 538 B.C., the seventh year after the first deportation in Babylon, that it was time to do what God has said. Or to put it in a better way, to watch God do what he has promised to do, and that is return the Jews to their homeland, accomplishing it through his servant Cyrus. It says here that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. How did the Lord stir up his spirit, Cyrus' spirit? I think the same way he often stirs up our spirits. Through his word, as we're digging in God's word, as we're reading Isaiah and Jeremiah. Look now at verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. See, God had stirred Cyrus's heart, spirit, and now he stirred the spirits of some of the Jews to return. So much so that they're willingly offered what they had to encourage the work. Hey, take what I have. We want this work to go on. Now, throughout Scripture, God is credited with stirring people's hearts to accomplish His plan, whether for captivity or release. But here we see He's stirring up to release from captivity. The King's Spirit is stirred to make the decree. Some of the people's uh, hearts and spirits were stirred to, to go and, and to give these precious things. Is it because God kept hounding them and hounding them? No, God disturbed their hearts. Let me say this. We're getting ready uh, and we're looking at getting ready to do the infield and, and the building of our, the new church property. And, and you know what? <laughs> we don't do capital campaigns. We don't do fundraisers. We're not going to have a, a thermometer in the back of the you know, foyer, you know, and, and each, each day, you know, a little red, a little bit higher and higher than that, you know. You know, well, maybe with the thermometer to see what temperature it is in here, but, but not, not financially like that, you know? Because why? Because we believe where God guides, God provides. God stirs it on the heart of people. My job as a pastor and the leadership of this church is to let you guys know the need and ask you to pray. Hey, this is where we're going, this is what's happening, so pray. See what God would have us to do. You know, we're meeting with a, a <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Going to meet with the contractor New Year's Eve. <laughs> at the time he was available, and, and uh, we're looking at you know how we can save money, what it's going to cost, and and but the whole thing is, God has stirred on our hearts. He's got this work for us to do, and we want to see this work of God accomplished. But see, God is in control. God is sovereign, and His plan will be accomplished how He wants it to. You know, whether it's going fishing and finding a coin in a fish's mouth or, or, or preparing a great fish to take Jonah to Nineveh or causing Caesar Augustus to issue a decree for a census that would take a very pregnant virgin they married to Bethlehem, God is in control. And that should bring us great comfort. You know, when no one is on our side and when only wickedness is in the land, God's plan still will unfold. And He will do whatever necessary to fulfill His promises. When I look at what else Cyrus does, he's moved by the Spirit of the Lord. Look at verses 7 through 11. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of uh, Mithredath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 
30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, 1,000 other articles, and a partridge in a pear tree. No. And all the other articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shezbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. This amazes me. Cyrus not only allowed the Jews to return home, but he gives them all of their priceless treasures from the temple. And this really is a work of God in someone's life. You know, when someone truly receives Christ and comes into a relationship with Him, it's great to watch the fruit that comes from that new life in Christ. It's just this, this giving heart, oh, how can I serve? What, what can I do? Because God's done so much for me. And you'll often see this in, per, in a person who's newly born again with their actions. Oftentimes that, that changes their view of money. I think as Zacchaeus is reaction to meeting the Lord. In Luke chapter 19, verse 8, it says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded any one of anything, I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus' view of money changed when he came to Christ. Cyrus had the same reaction when you're dealing with God, the things of this world. You know, they, they lose their grip. You, you don't grip them anymore. You just kind of let it go, even money. See, the, this, this whole picture is, is a beautiful picture of what God wants to do in us. Now look at God. He's, he, you know, he, he's a, he's God has a big eraser. And He's a God of second chances and third chances. He's a God of new beginnings. And He forgives us and He wipes our slate clean. Despite how we've ruined it, despite how we've, we've, we've dirtied up, despite our years in bondage. When we humble ourselves and repent and turn from our sin and turn towards Christ, He's ready to help us and start over. In the same way, Jesus is our Cyrus. He died and rose and now sits on the throne of God. In the process, he overthrew Babylon or the kingdom of Satan. Jesus makes deliverance possible for everyone formerly under Satan's dominion. And his decree is the gospel. I, I love the comparison. It's a proclamation that allows us to rebuild and start over. Our new life, new restoration was paid, bankrolled by the cross. Even our former treasures... Valuables that Satan stole have been returned. Talents are redeemed. Integrity is recovered. Relationships are mended. Joy is rejuvenated. Purpose is restored. Clarity is renewed. All the work of God, Holy Spirit, in our lives as we, we come to Him in faith. God is ready to rebuild. But understand, Christianity is the willingness to start over. Jesus brings a new direction, but He insists on that new lifestyle. No, it's not, well, I'll have a little bit of Jesus with my same old lifestyle. No, when, when the Lord comes, He wants a, a completely new home, you know, a, a, not, not just a little remodel this room or that room. It starts over. Here the Jews were uprooted and we planted. And that's God's plan for us. Jesus uproots our, our worldly thinking and priorities and He replants us in a new mindset. As a Christian, it means leaving that Babylon behind, moving into the Holy Land. Now, as we read... In verses 8 and 11, that Shezbazar is the guy put in charge of all the articles of gold and silver. I point this out because he's also going to be the guy that, uh, the one that laid the foundation of the temple. The name Shezbazar means joy in affliction, and uh, most likely commentators believe that, that, that that's like uh, his Chaldean name, that was his Chaldean name, to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel means stranger, a stranger in Babylon. And so that's what we have here. Now the decree has been issued. The Jews are ready to return. Chapter 1 closes with a packing list of treasures. Chapter 2 is a passenger list. 
it records that Jews who return to the land of Cyrus. Cyrus is urging. We're not going to read every single verse of chapter 2, but just look at, verses, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, every one to his own city. Then verse 2, all the way down to verse 63, we're told who came with Zerubbabel, and then the number of men, and the people of Israel that made their way back to Israel. When I read this, what's interesting to me is that 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul tells us that for the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. And verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he's pleased. See, just as God has called each one of us gathered together as his church of body believers we have different gifts God's given to each one of us. So here too, God was calling His people back to Israel. And these people had different gifts as they would go into that God wanted to use them to accomplish His will. Paul writes in Ephesians 4:11 through 13 and He gave Himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God. In other words, God has given all of His different gifts to be used by Him to accomplish His will. See, we exist as a church for three reasons. To exalt God, which is, you know, we sing praises to Him, we offer prayer. To edify His people, which is why we study the Word. And to evangelize the unsaved world, which is why we preach salvation. It's not just to evangelize. We need to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And here in chapter 2 is really a list of people that God is going to use in ministry to worship and restore His temple. They will begin to exalt God in worship and they'll edify His people and they'll be an example to the world around them. And in verses 36 through 39, we see a list of the priests that want a total of 4,289 men. I compare them to the leaders of the church. Hey, we got some leaders here that are stepping out. We're going to get this work started. And again, I think this list resembles the body of Christ and how he's brought us together to work. Verse 40 tells us about the 74 Levites that has also come out of Babylon. And of course, there are many more, but the Levites, we can classify them as, as ministry workers. Then you have the singers, the gatekeepers of the temple service. Verse 41, we read, the singers, the son of Asaph, 128. Asaph, if you remember, was the man who wrote 12 of the Psalms and had been appointed by David as the head of the temple worship team. So 128 worship team members. That's a big worship team, 128 people. But we need more people for ministry. Look at verse 42. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Asher, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akab, the sons of Atida, and the sons of Shabiah, 139 in all. The gatekeepers... They'd be the ones that would be stationed at the gates of the temple as guards. The chief gatekeepers were also in charge of the temple's chambers and the treasuries. Man, you can call them our ushers, our security team at the church. And I'm thankful for the ushers that we have here at the church as they're used by God to greet people and try and keep the distractions down to minimum so God can work powerfully in our lives. I'm sure that they would agree, Psalm 84.10, that says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. 
Certainly, uh, you know, serving the Lord even as a gatekeeper beats any day that you would have when you were in the world. Verses 43 through 54, we see temple servants. Verse 43 points out the Nephilim, not to be confused with the Nephilim of Genesis 6. Nephilim were temple servants, sort of like water boys who cut firewood for the altar, brought water for the, the lavery. Also, numbers those who had lost their pedigree and couldn't prove their Jewishness. I liken these to the, to the servants behind the scenes. You know, just do what needs to be done. No title, no position. Man, I just want to serve you wherever to do whatever you want, Lord. Then we read in verses 55 through 58 of the sons of Solomon's servants. They're all coming together to serve the Lord. And I believe, as we'll see in this study in Ezra, when people's hearts are right for ministry, God can and will do wonderful things. Finally, in verses 59 to 63 are those that weren't able to prove their ancestry. And then verse 64 through 67 provides the totals of all, including the animals. Let's look at verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. That's a lot of donkeys. If you add up all the totals from Zerubbabel's passenger list, you'll end up with 29,818 people. Now, they may have counted the woman in that number, but, the, but not in the itemized list. But understand, that count, that number of people was actually a, a cause for sadness. Over a million Jews lived in Babylon. Yet only 43,000 cared enough about God's desire to return. The Jewish historian Josephus comments, many remained in Babylon, being unwilling to leave their possessions. Prosperity lulled them, lulled them into this spiritual slumber. The Jews became too attached to their pagan surroundings. Man, why give up a cozy, cushy, cozy existence for the, the rigors and dangers and uncertainty of going back? God wanted His people back in the land. He opened the door to bring them back. And, and they knew it would not be easy. But they would have to stand up and move out in faith. And the choice was, uh, was obedience or comfort. God's way or the easy way. At times we have to make that same choice. Follow God or stay in Babylon. Take a step of faith. See what God's going to do. Or, or stay in that place of spiritual slumber. Knowing the days and the time in which we live, there should be no reason why any of us would not want to step out in faith and see what the Lord would do with just, just a few of us. His plans are awesome. Finally, verses 68 through 70, we read, some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas, or gold coins, 5,000 minas of silver, silver, <laughs> minas of silver, minas about a pound, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim dwelt in their cities and all, the, and all Israel in their cities. Now, why? Why all these names of families and priests and Levites and singers and gatekeepers and nethanims? Why are they all listed here? I mean, if I were writing the Bible, I would, I would just, I would sign it down. Just, just, you know, throw some numbers out there. But I wouldn't use all of that here, you know. Uh, but God is much, infinitely, infinitely more wiser than I am, and we should be grateful for that. Hebrews 6 tells us, 
that the Lord will not forget our labor and ministry. In other words, whatever you do, as you do it unto the Lord, be it a gatekeeper, an usher, a worship team member, a nethanim, a servant in the body of Christ, God is completely aware of all that you do. The Bible actually even says that, that He records out what we do and give, it, and give in His name. Hebrews 6.10 says this, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards His name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. In fact, Malachi 3.16 tells us that every time one of his people talks about the things of the kingdom, God makes note of that in a book of remembrance. See, God cares about his people, not as a group, but as individuals. And the people of Ezra's day were no exception. That's why he lists the, the names here who are willing to leave the comfort of the good life and make that hard journey back to Jerusalem. And God would honor that. Verse 69 says, and like this, according to their ability, they gave. They gave all that they had to be a part of something bigger. Their hearts are right before the Lord. You know, throughout Scripture, the people of God are called to finance the building of the house of God to provide for it. It's something God has called us to do. And, and so how much do you give? Well, here it says, according to their ability, they gave. I praise God for this church. We are a giving church here. We're blessed. And, and what is so great is that you know, we don't talk about money. We don't talk about tithing. We don't talk about giving here unless we hit it in God's word. But God is blessed and has given us opportunity to do so much more ministry. And I'm excited to see what God has for us in the coming year. I'm excited to go through the book of Ezra so we can apply it to what we're going through right now and see God use us as a church to bring Him glory. You know, we sing, show us your glory, show us your glory. And I believe the way we see God's glory is by giving opportunity to glorify God. As He gives us opportunity to glorify Him, His glory is shown. Oh, God, look what you've done here, and look what you've done here. That's showing God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we...